This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa podcast. By invading Ukraine, Vladimir Putin has united the world against him, destroyed his economy, exposed the weakness of his military, and jeopardized his once invincible hold on power. He's also done serious harm to his friends and lover like Donald Trump. I'm not an expert on NATO, but I have a lot of common sense. I like Putin. He likes me. You know, we get along. I do get along with uh, President Putin. Some people have said I have the greatest political instinct in 50 years. President Putin is sharp. Oh, I like Putin. President Putin was a total gentleman. I have good political instinct. Putin called me brilliant. I like it. Putin said Donald Trump is a genius. Putin said good things about me. He said he's a leader and there's no question about it. He's a genius. You have to follow your instincts. Putin even sent me a present. Beautiful present with a beautiful note. Of course, Trump has contributed to this carnage as he always fucking does. After the invasion began, he praised Putin's genius and remarked, he's taking over a country for $2 worth of sanctions. I'd say that's pretty smart. Trump couldn't wait to remind Putin of his unconditional devotion. That puckering posture can't be appealing to anyone this side of Tucker Carlson. It looks especially foolish and craven next to the brave defiance of Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. This continues to be a problem for the GOP as a whole, who are now falling over themselves to prove their anti-Putin credentials. The problem is that it's too little, too late, and for some, complete and total bullshit. Anybody tries to look back and say that somehow Donald Trump would have been better at this, it is just utter garbage. And I think anybody in their right mind can't truly believe that. And I think it's time to start telling people the truth. As the GOP tries to politically weaponize the Ukraine conflict to question President Joe Biden's leadership, it also spotlights the party's craven hypocrisy around its inability to take on Trump for his troublesome record with Russia and ongoing affinity for Putin. This is not only a political vulnerability for Republicans, but it's also a moral failing. But you are aware with all your experience of the fact that we have this relationship with Ukraine, that they are dependent upon us. And, and this complaint doesn't concern you. You can't say that publicly that it concerns you. There's a lot of things that concern me. I'm the director of national intelligence. Uh, and this one here, though, I just have to defer back to the conversation that the president had is his conversation. How the president of the United States wants to conduct uh, diplomacy is his business. And I is not whether or not I approve it or disapprove of it. That is the president's business on how he wants to conduct that, sir. The issue is whether it commits a crime and that bothers. No matter how many statements they put out condemning Putin's invasion of Ukraine or how many blue and yellow flag lapel pins they wear, the Republicans cannot escape Trump's role or the role of their favorite right-wing media personalities in carrying Putin's water for years. A not-so-secret faction of the GOP is rooting for the bad guys in this one. Many Trump. Republican base voters are dictator-curious. Representative Liz Cheney rightfully called out what she dubbed the Putin wing of the Republican Party, recently in response to pro-Russian rhetoric prominently featured on Fox News shows by a former Trump Defense Department official. Besides Trump, he's one of the several who have amplified Putin's propaganda. Oh, I think Zelensky is a puppet, uh, and he is putting huge numbers of his own population at unnecessary risk. And uh, quite frankly, most of what comes out of Ukraine is debunked as lies within 24 to 48 hours. The notions well, of taking and retaking airfields, all of this is nonsense. It hasn't happened. He's not a, a hero when he's standing up for himself and his own <laughs> people? You don't think he's a hero? No, I, I do not. I don't see anything heroic about the man. And I think the most heroic thing that he can do right now is to come to terms with reality neutralize Ukraine. <clears throat> this is not a bad thing. A neutral Ukraine would be good for us as well as for Russia. It would create the buffer that, frankly, both sides want. But he's, I think, being told to hang on and, and try to drag this out, which is tragic for the people that have to live through this. In the days leading up to the invasion, Tucker Carlson was openly critical of opposition to Putin and downplayed the conflict, calling it a border dispute. 
After Russia started bombing Ukrainian cities, he tried to backpedal by blaming Putin for what could become a world war. The reason why his show is so highly rated is because the man is extremely good at what he does. Why in the world would the United States intentionally seek war with Russia? What he's done is not pro-Putin, because that's impossible, right? You can't defend bombing hospitals, right? Killing babies and, right, killing pregnant mothers. You can't defend that, but you can be, or at least Tucker has been able to be, anti-anti-Putin. No one who knows anything and is honest will tell you Putin invaded Ukraine simply because he is evil. So the idea is that you're not pro-Putin, you're just against being against Putin. And I think it's a fascinating way to twist a narrative. While Republicans have largely returned to their more traditional foreign policy posture of full-throated support for NATO and calls for tougher action against Russian aggression, the lingering stink of their Trump-era dalliance with America First idiocy still lingers like a fart in a car. Where the fuck were they during the Trump years when he repeatedly undermined NATO's purpose and threatened America's role in the strategic alliance? To me, there's no question that, that there's a straight line, um, a, a logic link between the events, uh, between the Russian scandal and today. Um, certainly, there, President Trump undermined the, the, the rhetoric around our ironclad support to Ukraine. And then, of course, the, the perceptions around divisions between the U.S. and NATO uh, and internal to the U.S., these were all critical in terms of the kinds of uh, calculations that Vladimir Putin was making in determining whether to launch this war. And uh, uh, President Trump bears a huge amount of uh, responsibility for that. He has blood on his hands. Uh, he, he, in fact, encouraged Putin all the way to the last hours before this war. Trump's fixation with Russia has a long, well-documented history dating back to the mid-1980s. He sought not only to become a Russian ambassador in 1985, that's according to Nobel Peace Prize winner Dr. Bernard Lohn, but he's also been unabashed about his desire to build the Trump Tower there for decades. We've met with a number of people and we may do something in Moscow and in various parts of Russia, but we have had some meetings while I'm here and we could very well do something. We're thinking about doing a Trump Tower Moscow. So we're talking to a group of people about doing that. During the 2016 presidential campaign, the Trump Organization was prepared to give Putin a $50 million penthouse in the tower if a deal was struck. Rudy Colludi Giuliani claimed Trump was unaware of the offer, but as I stated before the House Oversight Committee and in court in 2018, Trump knew all about these deals because I fucking discussed them with him. The lengthy letter of intent is dated October 28, 2015, four months after Donald Trump announced his bid for the presidency. It bears Trump's signature script, and while the letter was non-binding, it detailed how any eventual Trump Tower in the heart of Moscow would have handed the Trump Organization a $4 million upfront fee, a percentage of the sales, and control over marketing and design. The deal also included an opportunity to name the hotel spa after Trump's daughter, Ivanka. I built a great company, but I'm not involved with Russia. Uh, I have had dealings over the years where I sold a house to a very wealthy Russian uh, many years ago. Uh, I had the Miss Universe pageant, which I owned for quite a while. I had it in Moscow a long time ago. Uh, but other than that, I have nothing to do with it. What's crazy, as this was all before Trump was even president and the GOP still gave him a pass. During his presidency, Trump's affinity for Putin was even more disgusting. His litany of crimes is as large as his big fat ass, but as many would argue, his 2018 Helsinki trip, during which he repeated an authoritarian trope calling the free press the true enemy of the people, and a joint press conference with Putin where he threw U.S. intelligence agencies under the bus in favor of Putin's word over theirs was his absolute worst. 
At the time, Senator John McCain of Arizona called it one of the most disgraceful performances by an American president in recent memory and said Trump had abased himself abjectly before a tyrant. Unfortunately, that behavior has continued on to the present day. The president may have liked his own performance in Finland, but on Capitol Hill, many others did not. I did not think this was a good moment uh, for our country. As long as Republicans embrace Trump as the GOP's supreme leader, given his support for autocratic ideals both home and abroad, their pro-Ukrainian democracy and anti-Putin pronouncements feel like opportunistic bullshit. No matter how many times Republicans try to claim Trump was tough on Putin, it's simply a tactic to try to whitewash history. There are a lot of Republicans, and it's a meaningful fraction, much larger than Senator McConnell believes, um, who believe that Vladimir Putin is the savior of white, straight Christian nationalism. You have a lot of Republicans who believe that Putin is anti-LGBT, and that is an appealing um, that is an appealing characteristic. They believe he is anti-immigration. That is an appealing characteristic to many of them. And again, there is a strain inside today's Republican Party that wants the man on the horse, that wants the strong man, that wants the. And again, the phrase "dictator curious" is one that I didn't use lightly. They don't really care about you know the the, the principles of democracy and of an American republic. They want power executed for its own ends. They want to see, as with Trump, they loved executive orders. They loved executive action. They loved not having to deal with Congress. They wanted Trump to exercise raw power. They're seeing Putin do the same thing, and they believe that, that he is a part of a global um, movement against the elites, against George Soros, against Klaus Schwab, against this sort of global modernism that they loathe. And so there are Republicans who are rooting for, for, for Vladimir Putin to win in Ukraine. And they're not a small group. And one of the one of the most vocal of them, of course, is one of the most powerful figures in the GOP, and that's Tucker Carlson. Beyond this revisionism, though, is the issue of what constitutes the real GOP. The new line from mainstream Republicans is that the folks who make up the so-called Putin wing of the Republican Party, a name brilliantly created by Liz Cheney, actually makes up a small minority of fringe Republicans. The vast majority of the Republican Party, writ large, both in the Congress and across the country, are totally behind the Ukrainians and urging the president to do, uh, take these steps quicker. Yeah. To be bolder. So uh, there may be a few lonely voices off the side. I wouldn't pay much attention to them. Beyond Russia, the excuse that the right's real problem is a small fringe in the GOP is fucking bullshit. Quite frankly, the GOP's mainstream is a lot closer to the MAGA mob than it is to Mitt Romney, the Bush family, or the late John McCain. For proof, one need look no further than Josh Hawley, the fucking jackass who fist-pumped the mob outside the Capitol on January 6th and voted to disenfranchise millions of voters. Now, Hawley argues that Supreme Court nominee Ketanji Brown-Jackson, who has already been confirmed by the Senate three or four times, is soft on child porn. What Josh Hawley is doing, let's be, let's be very clear, what Josh Hawley is doing when he tries to do this um, is he's trying to get her killed. He is trying to get violence done against a Supreme Court nominee. And we know this because when these people go off making their ridiculous claims about child pornography, we know that there, some of their people show up violently um, to, to do stuff as happened to the New Hampshire pizza parlor. And you know how I know that Josh Hawley knows what Pizzagate is all about? Because guess who's the judge who sentenced the Pizzagate guy. Right. Oh, that was Kataji Brown-Jackson. He sentenced the Pizzagate guy to four years in prison. Her, his, his lawyer had asked for 18 months. The prosecutors actually asked for four and a half years, so she was lenient. She was merciful to the Pizzagate guy, but they're, mad, but they're mad at her for that. And so like, that's where this stuff is coming from. And that's, so you need to know where it's coming from. And Democrats need to know how to defend her from this stuff instead of letting her, laying her out there on her own. The Fringe has plenty of company. This is a party that overwhelmingly refused to set up an independent commission to investigate the January 6th attack. 
It also refused to reauthorize the Voting Rights Act that previously passed the Senate unanimously and twice refused to impeach Trump. The party also brought the United States to the brink of defaulting on the debt. The GOP's mainstream, including House leadership, has tolerated violent rhetoric and grotesque anti-Semitism among its members. This is a civil war, and it's getting worse and worse. I sense there's a bit of a civil war brewing. The last time the states got this divided was, of course, leading up to the civil war. Right. This is a civil war. It's not going away. This is a cultural civil war. And these people are playing for blood. Every time they demonize the police, uh, people feel emboldened. They feel like it's okay for them to go out there and shoot a cop. I don't want any harm to come to these officers, but at the same time, I'm cheering on these patriots to do whatever they have to do. Because this is a battle for America and it's on. And we're not gonna sit here and stand by. At some point they might come uh, for us with masks in their hands. If you're a Republican, if you're a Trump supporter, we're coming after you. Anybody who thinks that this election went well like that idiot Krebs, that guy is a class A moron. He should be drawn and quartered, taken out at dawn and shot. I'd actually like to go back to the old uh, times of Tudor England. I'd put the heads on pikes, right? I put them at the two corners of the White House. They're coming for you and your neighborhood. I think we're on the verge of civil war. It's just as bad at the state level. Prominent Republican governors have spread COVID disinformation. They are also seeking to erect obstacles to voting and make it easier for partisan polls to politicize and overturn election results, all in service of the big lie of a stolen election. Red state governors, including presidential aspirants Ron DeSantis of Florida and Greg Abbott of Texas, spend their time designing cruel measures to harass and marginalize LGBTQ youth. Abbott and other red state Republicans now offer bounties to those who turn in women seeking abortions six weeks after becoming pregnant. Even worse, a law in Idaho would force rape victims to endure nine months of pregnancy while allowing their rapists to collect a bounty for turning them in if they seek an abortion. Sadly, it's mainstream Republicans who time and again unleash these monsters upon the electorate. First it was Trump, and now it's with a larger MAGA cult, all in the name of power. And in all fairness, folks, it's fucking sickening. And now for the main event. My next guest on Maya Culpa is Neil Ketal, the former Obama administration solicitor general of the United States and New York Times bestselling author of Impeach, the case against Donald Trump. In addition, Neil runs one of the largest Supreme Court practices in the world, where he occupies the role formerly held by now Chief Justice John Roberts. From a legal perspective, the man is an absolute heavy hitter and one of the sharpest minds we have on this show to date. He has orally argued 43 cases before the Supreme Court, with 41 of them in the last decade. At the age of 50, he has already argued more Supreme Court cases in US history than any other attorney, breaking the record of Thorogood Marshall. He joins us today on Mea Culpa to discuss how the GOP has attempted to whitewash the history of Trump and Ukraine, as well as the facts behind the Justice Department's new oligarch squad, which is seeking to seize the assets of Russian billionaires. So let's go now to that conversation. Okay, Neil, in recent weeks, Donald Trump and the GOP have attempted to rewrite the history of Trump's relationship with Ukraine, literally casting himself as both the savior and protector. I mean, I know it's a joke. In reality, Trump's politicization of both NATO and Ukraine, it's really what gave Putin a green light to invade on the basis that America was so irreparably divided that half the country would support the Russian invasion. Now, that obviously turned out not to be the case, but it does seem that Trump's political games in the region, coupled, of course, with his relationship as, you know, as best friends with Putin, opened the door for this entire terrible moment. Now, I'm curious in your opinion, 
how you see history ultimately recording Trump's relationship with Ukraine and Putin and how much responsibility he bears for the invasion. Well, first of all, Michael, it's such a pleasure to see you again. And I really appreciate the question because the idea that Donald Trump was like some supporter of Ukraine and standing up to Russia is, to use the technical legal term, poppycock. Um, It's just flat out wrong. It's like equivalent to Donald Trump saying he's the least racist person in America. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, right. Um, So, you know, just to remind everyone what that first impeachment of Donald Trump was all about. It was about Ukraine. It was about exactly this. There was a whistleblower, Colonel Vindman, who actually, you know, listened in to the phone call where Donald Trump tried to extort the president of Ukraine, the man we all now know is a hero, Zelensky. At that time, you know, even I, like, who's the Zelensky guy and so on. But the people in the national security establishment, like Colonel Vindman, knew exactly who he was, the leader of the Democratic Republic of Ukraine, a person who's standing up to Russia, standing up to authoritarianism. And of course, that's what Donald Trump detests. And so when Donald Trump called him and said, you know, we're going to withhold this military aid and javelins, basically, even though Congress had appropriated it, they passed a law saying this is stuff you must give, Mr. President. He said, well, wait a minute. Before you do that, I need you to look into Hunter Biden, help him out with his presidential campaign against Joe Biden. I can't think of something that's a more flagrant abuse of power. Indeed, it's why I wrote this book. This book is all about exactly this point. It's about when you use, you know, our founders in their wisdom gave the president the most awesome suite of powers because they knew to use the Federalist Papers language, presidents can act with secrecy and dispatch and do things quickly that Congress can't. We don't want like foreign affairs decisions to be driven by Congress in a crisis because they can't agree on, you know, whether to have daylight savings time or not, you know, or anything else. So you've got to have strong presidential powers. But at the same time, that creates the opportunity for abuse. And that's exactly what Trump did, which is why, like, as you talk about history, Michael, and your question to me and what history will record, history will record Donald Trump as an authoritarian, a thug, a person who didn't understand the first precepts of democracy. But it'll also condemn all of those senators and members of the House of Representatives who voted not to impeach or to acquit Donald Trump. You know, in the cold light of day, that looks like a crazy set of decisions. Yeah, crazy is right. Look, uh, you know, in your law school, obviously, you probably went to a, you know, an Ivy League law school. I right? went to where your daughter went to law school, as I recall. Uh, University of Pennsylvania. Oh, I thought you went to Yale Law School. I'm no, sorry. no, no, no. Um, that, that's where Tiffany Trump wanted to go. But unfortunately, <laughs> they said, even despite the fact that your father is the president, uh, how about that's a big no. Uh, <laughs> but in my law school, right, we don't call it poppycock. We just call it straight out now bullshit, which is really <laughs> what Trump is all about. It's just out and outright bullshit. But something that I was reading the other day, you know, the newspaper, uh, the online uh, that I where I saw it called The Independent. There's a journalist, I read it yesterday, by the name of Gustav Kuhlander. And it was really an amazing thing to me where Trump... Th- Talk about just being disrespectful. So it's not just bullshit. He's an asshole. During the middle of Zelensky's speech to Congress, right? What does Trump decide to do? He can't allow Zelensky to have his moment. And it's not even just about Zelensky. It's all about the fact that Ukraine is under attack. Thousands of people dead, mass graves, maternity, hospitals bombed, shit on fire. I mean, you know, this is people fleeing the country. I think 1.5 million refugees, right? What does Trump have to do? I, I, the spotlight should be on me. Quite frankly, I'm the savior, right? Well, actually, this guy Gustav writes that during the statement that uh, Volodymyr Zelensky was making to Congress, Trump is complaining while this is going on of the supposed lack of reporting that he rebuilt a floundering NATO. 
Can you do me a favor? Because as I read through the article and as I read through Trump's statements that people forget so quickly, no one forgets faster than Donald, right? With the help of the fake news that it was me, right, who um, cre fixed this floundering NATO basically by forcing people, um, these countries to pay more into it, that he should be given some sort of a prize or at least a pat on the back. Tell me what you make of this. I can't translate cray-cray, um, <laughs> and that's what that is. It's just a bunch of nonsense. Um, you know, the facts are that Donald Trump weakened our relationship with Ukraine and strengthened our relationship with his good buddy, Vladimir Putin. And, you know, you started our show today by talking about how Trump emboldened Putin, and that's exactly right. I mean, if you're Vladimir Putin, you've basically got a Russian asset in the president, maybe not a winning Russian asset. You know, it's hard to, you know, Donald Trump's, you know, state of mind and intelligence better than I do. But at least someone who was cozying up to a dictator and weakening our ability to basically, you know, say to Russia, if you do X or Y against Ukraine, we're going to stand with Ukraine. And, you know, John Bolton, you know, President uh, Trump's national security advisor, has been out on the airways in recent days saying Trump wanted to collapse NATO. The idea that this guy was a savior of NATO is a joke. Um, so, again, it's 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 rewriting history in the most opposite way possible. And it reminds me of, like, what they're saying about January 6th now. It's a bunch of peaceful freedom fighters or something like that. You know, the images are the images. We know what they are. With Trump in Ukraine... There happens to be a transcript of the phone call. You know, Trump calls it perfect and perfectly wrong, perfectly impeachable is what it is. Um, everyone can read it for themselves and see what he said. I just wish that it was somebody other than John Bolton, right? I mean, don't you think, Neil, that we could have used this information during the impeachment one and two? Don't you think we could have used it during the hearings that were going on, even after Trump had lost the election and so on. But instead, he holds on to the information. And now all of a sudden, he wants to come out and he wants to be the good guy. He wants to try to salvage his tarnished reputation, sell a book. And basically, I don't know if you read his book. I did, right? To me, it was like pulling nose hair. And if it wasn't that I was reading it while I was in solitary confinement and it was the only book I was able to get my hands on because we everybody was trading and it was the only book I had just gotten in and I had nothing, so a guy left it by the door for me to read. It was painful. It was painful because it's just like Trump. It's just like, you know, Steve Bannon. It's just like the rest of these guys that it's all self-laudatory. Oh, Donald said, speak to Bolton. Bolton's the only guy who knows. Bolton, if he knows anything, should have come clean earlier on. My feeling is too little too late. A hundred percent, Michael. And you're talking to a guy who's litigated the question of solitary confinement torture under the Eighth Amendment. And, you know, I certainly think there's a good case that it is, but you've just made the greatest case. I mean, if you're in solitary and the only book you're left with is John Bolton's, um, you know, the founders have to have condemned uh, that. Um, so uh, now that's cruel. Know, and uh, Neil, that's cruel and unusual punishment. Absolutely. And I'm going to bring so, that up in my lawsuit against the United States government, Trump and Bill Barr. <laughs> so, well, I'm glad you mentioned Barr, because I do think that there's this whole tendency of people in Washington to go and be witness to horrific, unconstitutional, undemocratic, authoritarian events involving Donald Trump and save it for their book like two years later so they can cash in on it. And Bolton's part of that and Barr and their- And Stephanie Grisham, all of them. Yeah. Yeah. All of them, all of them. And, um, you know, like- the idea that Bolton sat on this information during the impeachment, I can't, I mean, I can't imagine how that is consistent with your oath to the Constitution, to the laws, your responsibilities of being a U.S. citizen, the responsibilities of being a decent person who actually cares about this country, who cares about what it's about. Um, you know, these people have been so blinded by party loyalty or some, you know, fear that Donald Trump's going to, like, get them you know, in the back alley or something, um, you know, that they have, you know, hid the truth and hid it for far too long. Yeah, agreed. So, Neil, I'm curious. I'm curious, though, what you think 
Trump's reaction would have been to a Russian invasion of Ukraine had had he been president, right? Would he have stopped it, you know, which is what he claims? Or do you think he would have just shrugged his shoulders and said, you know, pass the salt as Putin leveled Ukraine? Come on, Michael. You know, he's going to he put flowers on the ground. Of course, I know the answer, Neil, but you're my <laughs> you guest. Know, and so I'm asking you. I'm asking you. Ignorance, it would be it would be welcoming. Um, you know, he doesn't care about Ukraine. As long as Putin said something nice about him, you know, to the cameras, he'd be happy. Um, you know, every dictator knows this, that the way to Donald Trump's heart is just to say some nice things about him. And all of a sudden that relationship, you know, changes with the United States. Um, and so, um, no, I have no doubt whatsoever that Trump uh, would have um, blown Ukraine just as he blew everything. I mean, the man had an anti-Midas touch. Literally everything he touched turned to, and you can use your expletive. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> I so. mean, you know, you could you could say it too, because it's true. You know, okay, look, I know, maybe it's not the nicest way, you know, to describe it, but it is what it is. You know, we're, we're in the situation, Neil, that is potentially World War III. I mean, I never thought, I mean, I know everybody's always talked about, oh, the possibility of World War III and mutually assured destruction because there's like 20,000 nuclear warheads between, you know, seven or eight different, you know, um, countries. This is different. I mean, this is really different because we're seeing so much that's reminiscent of 1935, of Nazi Germany, in terms of Joe Biden now telling Putin, if you cross one inch into a NATO territory, it's World War III. To which, of course, Putin responds immediately, because he's a tough guy. That's okay, it'll be nuclear. This is no joke. You know, like so many of, like yourself, myself, <coughs> you know, we have children. You know, we have, you know, grandchildren, some of great-grandchildren, and so on. You know, families. I'm not looking for my son, you know, to have to be drafted. I'm not looking for your son or daughter to have to be. I'm not looking for anybody to have to be drafted, nor am I hoping to see our military, right, our amazing military, have to be deployed for a stupid war like this. But when I say stupid, I'm not talking about stupid in terms of saving Ukraine and democracy. Remember, my wife is from Ukraine. You know, she's from an area that was called Chernovtsi. The, for some reason, they show it on the map as Chernovitz, but it was, it was you know, always referred to as Chernovtsi. Um, I don't want to see when I say, you know, stupid war. No. I, I think... Putin is making this stupid. There's no reason for him to be there. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And um, and this is where, you know, thank God we actually have someone who's sane in the White House, because who knows exactly how Trump would handle all of this. Um, you know, I, I'm glad to see President Biden not escalate this like too much dramatically, put ourselves on massive nuclear alert and responsive to the Russians. And just to be calm and careful in his reactions. Now, you know, it's heartbreaking, too. I mean, I don't mean to say that it, this is necessarily the right thing, but at least it's a rational set of responses uh, that, uh, that's that been going on. And someone who has the intelligence and capacity to actually react in real time, as opposed to just reacting to the latest flattery from Vladimir Putin. Yeah. And what bothers me the most is seeing all of the images of the blown up buildings, the bodies on the ground. You know, by the way, not just Ukrainian soldiers, most of the Russian soldiers don't even know what they're doing there. And when captured, they were like, we thought it was a training exercise. We weren't told what's going on here. I mean, they, I think the whole thing is just batshit crazy. And it's legitimately insane, which many people are saying that Vladimir Putin is. But what bothered me more than anything on top of all of it, as this thing was just beginning and going on, dear old Donald jumps in, praising Putin and justifying invading Ukraine and calling it genius and savvy. What the hell is genius and savvy about invading a sovereign country that's a democracy for no legitimate purpose? Yeah, that's beautifully said, Michael. And you can contrast that, you know, Trump calling Putin a genius and all that with 
President Biden's words about Vladimir Putin, war criminal, because that's what's going on. In addition to all the horrific stuff you mentioned, the deaths of war, the fear that our children have about nuclear war, about being drafted or so on, is also the fact that Vladimir Putin is targeting civilians and in ways that are clear war crimes. And, you know, hopefully one day we'll, you know, he'll come to justice for it. Yeah. And then there's one more thing that Trump turned around and said, which, again, got me all infuriated because, again, I sat next to this this asshole for so many years, for over a decade. All right. And I never thought I would hear him say something this ludicrous, this stupid, when he said, when, um, you know, when asked about Putin and the invasion, how smart is that? And he's going to go in and be a peacekeeper. What, I, I, even I don't know what was going through his mind at that time. You have any idea? Oh, I think he, you know, I think he meant exactly what he said, which is, you know, he doesn't care about people or, you know, the instability in the world order. He just kind of think, oh, that's a strong man doing a strong thing. Um, and, you know, that's one of the biggest problems we had with Trump, which was, you know, he'd flex his muscles in stupid ways um, and try and look tough. And then when it came to actually being tough, like what he does in secret with Ukraine, he blew it. Yeah, talk about blowing it. And then, you know, what, what's he going to do? You know how Donald would turn around and claim that he was averting uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine? He would call Vladimir Putin, you know, little rocket man. Uh, you know, he would take the same line that he did with Kim Jong-un. Then he'll say, oh, but, you know, when I called him little rocket man and told him that fire and fury would ring down upon, I mean, seriously, I mean, Seriously, I don't think that anyone, including the GOP, believes anything that comes out of this guy's mouth anymore. And I think that the stupidity of the comments that he's recently made has made him persona non grata, even really with the upper echelon of the GOP. Well, I'd like to think that's right, but I've thought that, you know, with other stuff, the crazy stuff that he said, and, and you know, kind of fomenting January 6th, and maybe for a day or a week, but not long-term. And, you know, Michael, you know, it's not like these comments about Putin just started now about how smart he is and genius. They were all through his presidency. I mean, but, you know, like there's a pretty good case that the Justice Department should seize Donald Trump as a Russian asset. Um, you know, I mean, it was straight through the presidency up until basically now. And, um, you know, it's not a surprise that people like Putin take advantage of what uh, that those kinds of statements and how divided America would be when Donald Trump basically said nice things about Russia. You know, Malcolm Nance used to describe Donald as a useful idiot, you know, that he doesn't even know that he's playing. And then as I was just on, um, you know, uh, the a recent podcast, I had uh, Matthew Van Dyke of Sons of Liberty International, who went over to Ukraine in order to teach the Ukrainians guerrilla warfare and how to fight. Uh, so he's there right now. So I got him while he was uh, on the ground there uh, in Ukraine. And I can tell you something. He said the same thing. Donald's so stupid, he doesn't even realize that he's being played. And yet you get Don Jr. and Eric going on, you know, Fox News and Newsmax and anybody that'll allow them to spew their continued nonsense, you know, saying, you know, my father knows better than anyone about people and he's playing Putin like a fiddle. And you sit there and you're like, oh my God, seriously, shut up or somebody lower the microphone because if they shut the microphone off, he would look less stupid in those comments. And it's, it's amazing. Yeah. And I don't know what point they're trying to portray. I, I really don't understand it. Right. I mean, uh, you know, you described him as a useful idiot, and I certainly agree with at least half of that. Um, and uh, and I think, you know, the thing that bothers me the most about this, you know, having had a foot in the intelligence community world for a while in the government, is, you know, foreign governments are incredibly savvy about our leaders, as we are about them. And we profile them with all sorts of experts, and they do it to us from psychologists on, uh, doctors, all sorts of people to try and understand 
a leader's or a person's vulnerabilities, strengths, how they're going to react to stuff and so on. The idea that like, you know, Donald Trump can just figure all this out on his own and look into Putin's, you know, heart and, you know, and uh, and stand up to him is so dumb. It's just that's not the way this works. Even if you are a genius, you know, we've certainly had some presidents who are. But even still, you rely on all of that background information and experts. What did Trump do? He just blew all that off. He didn't even bother reading his daily intelligence briefings. Instead, he kind of thought he knew best um, because there were you know, not enough pictures in his briefings, so he just blew them off. Yeah, well, that's because you don't know how Donald Trump operates, all right? So a question such as, should we give the $400 million to Ukraine for armaments, which was, of course, appropriated by Congress? Donald reached into the bottom of the Lincoln desk and he pulled out his magic eight ball. And then he started to shake the eight ball and it said, shake again. And so he shook again, right? Because it's either shaking that or he's going to be, right, you know, swirling the, the straw in his milkshake or, you know, wolfing down another hamburger. And it said, no. And so that's why he decided it was only until he ultimately shook the magic eight ball that it said yes. Did he decide to well, ultimately that's let a the, lot more methodological than I thought that Trump's decision making would be? <laughs> it's all about the magic eight ball, my man. It's all about the magic eight ball. So <laughs> you know, let me yeah, let me move on for a second here, because in recent weeks, the DOJ has launched a kleptocracy unit aimed at Russia's billionaire oligarchs. What will the unit be chasing, and how do these oligarchs connect to Putin? Does his power flow from them, or does their power flow from him? And how do you think seizing their assets is putting pressure on the dictator? Well, I think it puts you know a modest amount of pressure on it. It's not obviously you know tantamount to arming the Ukrainians or or something like that, but it is relevant that one of the ways Putin has created a power base is by uh, working through these oligarchs who actually have a lot of Putin's money. A lot of Putin's money isn't in his own name. It's in the names of other people. And he lays claim over it with, of course, presumably the assets of, you know, the intelligence services and so on. And, you know, we've seen in the United Kingdom what happens if you try and cross Russia's intelligence services. So I think these oligarchs have been historically quite afraid and, you know, wanted to give Putin his due. And so they're basically Putin's support network uh, externally. And when you seize these, you know, huge assets, these yachts worth $700 million and the like, you start to eliminate a little bit of his power base. Again, it's just a modest step. It's not a, a grand one. Um, I have been pleased to see, Michael, that it's not just the United States doing this, but it's folks around the world. I mean, Italy and Germany and all sorts of places taking really strict actions I mean, we've seen it with the UK, you know, and the Chelsea soccer team, uh, all sorts of actions to really try and get at this, um, which isn't an easy thing for a country to do, particularly when some of these people have really become enmeshed into the society, British, you know, London society or whatever, but they're standing up to it. Yeah, but as you know, and I want to make this clear to my listeners as well, let's go back to when the United States seized property by, you know, Iranians. Uh, years ago. It is a lengthy, and I mean a very lengthy, more than two years, I believe it took in order to seize certain assets, um, especially condos and real estate, uh, both New York, Palm Beach, and throughout the United States. It's a lengthy process between the go between governments, right? I mean, because they just don't roll over and say, yeah, sure, you know, you can take it. Um, I mean, they, the government is going to have to show that that individual was linked to a crime, not just having money, right? And, you know, because he's a principal of whatever the, I hate to call it a state-owned company because they own, you know, the government in Russia owns 25% of every company, but not just because this oligarch is a, uh, let's say, you know, an oil magnet or a steel magnet or whatever else that, you know, that they, but you have to show much more. You have to show the crime and the crime cannot simply just be, Hey, 
You're a friend of Vladimir Putin's, therefore I'm seizing your $500 million yacht. I'm seizing your house. I'm seizing your apartments. It's not that simple. Right. No, you're absolutely right. Friendship alone can't be the basis for seizure. Otherwise, Mar-a-Lago would have been seized a long time ago. <laughs> Amen to um, that. So, um, And it depends country by country. So as I understand it in the United Kingdom, if you just can't prove the source of the funds for a big purchase, like a yacht or an apartment, then it can be seized. And different countries do it differently. But Michael, you're right. You know, we all live in democracy. We're talking about largely democracies, which do have the rule of law. And one aspect of the rule of law is you just can't, the government can't just take your property really willy-nilly for no reason. So there is a process with Iran, you're right. It was something called the Iran Claims Tribunal, which was set up and operated for, I think, more than 20 years um, while it resolved these claims. Having said that, I think if you're an oligarch right now and you don't have access to your yacht or your fancy apartment or whatever, yeah, you have the prospect of a legal remedy some years later down the road. But right now, you're sitting with a lot less of an asset, a lot less set of assets than you did, a lot fewer assets than you did, you know, a month ago. And who do you have to blame for that? You have basically Vladimir Putin to blame. Yes, they do. I'm not sure that's going to get him to change his mind. Look, he's got plenty of money overseas, too, all over the place, which maybe this will now show us exactly where the money is. But, you know, I, as a person who had his First Amendment constitutional right violated when I was lured down to 500 Pearl by the Southern District of New York, by the Bureau of Prisons, by Bill Barr, by Donald Trump, which you know that lawsuit is pending. This, to me, seems very close to a real Fourth Amendment, you know, um, unreasonable search and seizure um, claim, you know, uh, against the United States government. And I just don't want this to be one of those things where it detracts from the legitimacy of what the U.S. government is doing to punish Putin. And that's that's my yeah. hope. No, I hear you. But I think actually the Justice Department so far, and they've appointed a prosecutor to head this, a very respected, balanced one, I think is going to be careful about exactly that and not just seize stuff because, you know, you happen to be in a picture with Vladimir Putin or had dinner with him, as, you know, Michael Flynn did. Um, and perhaps, you know, uh, others. So I think there's going to be a higher threshold to prove. You're right. At some point, you could imagine a prosecutor going too far. And at that point, the court system will protect, hopefully, that person. Well, it has an obligation, right? Um, whether yeah. you're, I mean, you are entitled to the protections of the Constitution. Again, assuming that you're a U.S. citizen, right? Uh, you, the Constitution doesn't apply. Yeah, and the foreigners do, if, in the United States, do have some constitutional right to supply us differently. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So let me then ask you this, because I'm curious. I'm curious what you make of John Bolton's crusade now to debunk Trump uh, in Ukraine. We talked about this, you know, for a brief moment, but I have a little bit more. Bolton says that he, Pompeo, and Esper were appalled at how Trump treated Ukraine, that he believes that Trump was going to pull the U.S. out of NATO in his second term, and that it was Putin was waiting for before moving forward with plans to invade Ukraine. Now, if you would, let's like really dive deep into this. Discuss with me if you think Bolton actually now has the credibility to puncture this Trump narrative. Yeah, unfortunately, Bolton doesn't. Um, but I don't have any reason to doubt all of that's true, that Bolton saw all of this. It sounds totally of a piece of the transcript and the other things we know about Donald Trump. It's a, you know, it certainly seems a lot more plausible than any other alternative. And I also take Bolton at his word that he probably was aghast at this because any thinking person would be. And, you know, Bolton's got some problems with rationality, but at the end of the day, you know, I think he understands basic facts. And the basic fact is Ukraine was our democratic ally. Congress had said so. Congress had appropriated money for military assistance to Ukraine. And Trump was interfering with that because he had a personal agenda. He wanted some help with his presidential campaign from a foreign nation. And that's what was going on. And of course, any right thinking person would be aghast. I, I, I would put Bolton in that. I don't know about Pompeo, but um, but I certainly would put Bolton in that. And that was the tragedy. And that's what we were trying to explain during that first impeachment, that that's what this was about. It wasn't like some 
random call to a foreign leader, the kind that presidents have all the time. This was basically an extortion attempt using military aid that Congress had appropriated for that reason. Wait, and, so, you're trying, um, so you're trying to tell me there, Neil, that what Trump did is improper? Like you can't, you know, you can't sort of try to extort the president of another country for the benefit of, you know, your upcoming presidential election? I mean, is there a problem with that? Yeah, exactly, Michael. The question answers itself. <laughs> right? Could you imagine? But, you know, my biggest problem with Bolton and Esper and the whole group of them is we're being asked to take them for their word. And I actually don't. I know them all. And they lie to the same extent that Donald Trump lies. They lie with impunity. They lie for their own benefit. So let me just say this to you, Neil. We're all confused here in New York about Alvin Bragg, our district attorney. We're all, I mean, we're all like apoplectic that he yeah. allowed lawyers like Mark Pomerantz I mean, Mark Pomerantz isn't, I mean, he's about as good as you can get. And uh, Carrie Dunn, right? Um, I mean, to walk when you have this outstanding, you know, potential indictment in this case. The reason I bring this up is because I know the documents that I gave to them, the documentary evidence that would have gone ahead and indicted him and put him away. What information, what documentary evidence, what anything other than their personal word and attestation have they given? Yeah, so I, Michael, I'm so glad you brought this up because to me, I am apoplectic about what looks like a decision from the New York District Attorney not to indict Donald Trump for all of his lies to the New York authorities about his properties. Um, the two prosecutors that have been working on this case for a long time, Mark Pomerantz and Kerry Dunn, I've worked with them both. And I've worked with basically most of the nation's top lawyers. And these two are in that category. They are exquisite at what they do. And if the reports are to be believed, and I don't know, I'm just reading the newspapers, they said that a criminal case should be brought. And the new district attorney, who's been on the job for all of one month, has put the kibosh on that. Um, that is, you know, Trump skating by again because of some person in power who's on a, who's afraid to do the right thing. And if this is a decision, I condemn it in strong terms. Um, if the facts are that Pomerantz and Dunn said to indict, um, you know, those those folks are as good as it gets. It's the gold standard. And they I are. don't have access. I don't have access to the documents, Michael, that you have and that you turned over. But I. I take you at your word that there's some serious improprieties here. You know, I read your book, which was incredibly good, which detailed a lot of this. And, um, you know, I, I sure hope that there's not a final decision being made here. Well, you and I both. So, Neil, look, I have one last question for you. All right. It seems that the biggest benefit Trump garnered from Russia's invasion of Ukraine was the attention it took off his own legal perils. Just a few weeks ago, all eyes were on him for various entangling investigations that really threatened to take him and his family down. Now, do you, does the war take off some of the pertinence in getting to a Trump indictment? Or does the fact that he caused it make the need to put him away all that more important? I 100% think it's the latter. I think you can't go through and think about Ukraine without thinking about how we got here. And Michael, you're absolutely right. You know, the press cycle for the last three weeks has been for all the right reasons dominated by Ukraine. But three weeks and four weeks ago, two very significant things happened. Three weeks ago, you had Congress filing a brief in federal court in the John Eastman case, yep. laying out how Donald Trump himself committed federal felonies. This is an extraordinary document. You know, to have Congress accuse the president of the United States of committing felonies and not just minor ones like rip the, the mattress tag off or something like that, but the most serious ones imaginable about conspiracy and the like is, you know, remarkable. Um, and it was signed, that brief, by Doug Letter, who is as sober an attorney as you come, can come across. He was a 
Justice Department lawyer for 40 years, beloved by both Republicans and Democrats alike. And he signed that document saying basically Donald Trump committed, they had reason to believe Donald Trump committed these federal felonies. And before that, the week before that, you had this decision by Judge Mehta, who's one of the, our most respected judges in my town in Washington, D.C., basically saying on the civil side that Donald Trump couldn't dismiss the action filed by Representative Eric Swalwell and others, which accused Trump of fomenting the January 6th insurrection. And this 100-page opinion goes through all of the evidence for how Trump encouraged, aided, and abetted what happened on January 6th. So both of those things happened. To be sure, we haven't been talking about them for the last three weeks, but you can bet dollars to donuts we'll be talking about them in the months to come because there is nothing more important in our American democracy than figuring out who should be president and what standards we expect of them. And here you had a guy who betrayed his oath, who betrayed his promise to the American people, all in the pursuit of a little bit of ego and a little bit of personal gain. And a lot of power. But, you know, yesterday, CNN, Dan Berman put out um, an article and there was like a couple paragraphs in it. It was all about the various investigations into Trump. And this goes to your point, Neil. And I just want to read a, a small part of it. Trump is being sued by lawmakers and police officers. His niece, Mary Trump, magazine writer E. Jean Carroll, whose rape accusation he denies, and his former attorney, Michael Cohen, who's already served time in jail. Now, there's also the New York State Attorney General and the Manhattan District Attorney looking at his company. There's also several congressional committees that still want his tax returns. On top of that, you have the January 6th House Select Committee uh, investigation, as well as you have lawsuits by Democratic Latin. I take my hat off to Eric Swalwell. I'm a big, I like Eric Swalwell. I think he's, I really think he's great. I think he's got one heck of a future in the Democratic Party and hopefully one day, you know, to even be the Democratic nominee for the presidency. But you start to take a look at all of these things that, you know, that Donald Trump, Georgia, uh, as an example, to overturn the election, the conversation he had with Raffensperger. Then there's also the fake electors in Michigan. I mean, it is a plethora. Neil, have you ever seen anyone with this amount of litigation that just still is out there walking the streets, that's sitting there and stuffing his fucking face with more Mar-a-Lago burgers and Diet Cokes? I mean, standing up and getting applause by these billionaires that are there at Mar-a-Lago. I mean, there's something really wrong with the system. Right. Michael, as an attorney, uh, you know, I kind of wish this guy Trump paid his bills because he's a one-man jobs creation program for my entire profession. Um, you know, it's the guy operated so lawlessly that it's not surprising that it's starting to catch up with him. And to me, it's also remarkable. It's not just the lawlessness. It's also how Basically, everyone who has come close to him has winds up having to write a book or attack him in some way because they're disgusted by his behavior. It's not just, you know, William Barr and Ambassador Bolton, like we were talking about, you know, Stephanie Grisham. It's, you know, even Vice President Pence. It's everyone around him. And of course, you know, you as part of that. I mean, this is a guy who cultivates loyalty by fear when you're working for him. But the moment these people are out, they're writing books and, you know, and attacking him and calling him authoritarian or whatever, um, which is not a great track record. I do want to end on one moment, one note of hope, though. Um, and the hope is uh, to think about what happened in the day or two before January 6th, when Vice President Pence was thinking about the right thing to do. Now, this is not exactly a guy who was picked for his spine. Um, uh, or, you know, his you know, intelligence, the Constitution. right. Or, but, or his commitment to the constitution. But what did he do? He reached out to a very conservative judge, a judge named Michael Ludig. Um, Ludig, when I was growing up in law school, was kind of the rock solid conservative judge that every one of the conservatives in the Federalist Society wanted to clerk for. He was the runner up to the Supreme Court seat that Sam Alito ultimately got. Um, probably passed over because he was too conservative and the like. Um, but Ludig told Pence, 
basically and tweeted this out that, you know, look, Pence, this is all BS, what Trump is saying. You've got no ability to pick the next president, that that is totally undemocratic. Um, and that led Pence to do the right thing. And so you have these two people, Ludig and Pence, who ultimately do the right thing. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm really taken by what Ludig did there because, um, you know, there's a, there's a, to me, he actually did more for our democracy by not being on the Supreme Court and making that decision and telling the president, the vice president that than anything he would have done on the Supreme Court or anything that most justices have done during their tenure on the court. So, you know, I know we've been talking and we painted a bleak picture from Ukraine to Trump to the rule of law and the like. But there is that bright spot that I, I wanted to just mention. But Neil, let's not forget for a quick second here regarding Vice President Pence. And you're right when you said he wasn't picked for his spine or for his intelligence or his you know, rule of law for the Constitution. In fact, I believe the only reason that he went along with the decision of the judge was because they had lost the election. And he knew they lost the election and he was going to be out anyway. And so now when you start to see Mike Pence, who had the ability to say things during his four years there, I would have loved to see him open his mouth and say, Donald, you can't do that. It is illegal for you to do that. And then let totally Trump turn around and fire him. Totally, my friend. I agree with you. My point is about looting. It's not about Pence. Um, and uh, 100% agree. So it's been such a pleasure to see you again. Neil, the um, same. Thank you for having me on. Neil, always good to see you, and thank you for everything. And I will definitely be speaking to you again soon. There's a lot of activity going on, especially legally, uh, for Trump and company. So thank you. Thank you. And now for today's mea culpa. In thinking about the GOP's sudden support for Ukraine, I'm getting pretty fucking mad about their whole charade. The grandstanding and speeches about unilateral toughness and the weakness of President Biden stand in stark contrast to how they allow Trump to use the country and abandon Zelensky for his own nefarious purposes. In failing to condemn Trump's extortion, arguably the worst betrayal of American national security by a president in history, they allowed the idea of seeing Russia's righteousness to persist. To listen to Trump, Ukraine was an illiberal kleptocracy undeserving of our support or protection. The GOP doesn't want to talk about that, nor do they want to examine their own role of that of virtually every other Republican in letting Trump escape punishment for his actions. It would also entail accepting responsibility for their role in signaling to Putin that he could rely on Trump and Republicans to accede to his aggression. Republicans not only acquitted Trump, but many actively defended him, including by repeating Russian disinformation. In the House, GOP members tried every tactic they could imagine to avoid rendering a judgment on Trump's shocking conduct. Moreover, to condemn Trump for withholding military aid to Ukraine during its war with Russia would entail acknowledging that the Republican Party is only a recent convert to the causes of democracy and Ukraine's survival. Why would the GOP have supported a man so devoted to Putin for re-election in 2020? The fact of the matter is that the Republican Party, with a big assist from the mainstream media, has never accepted responsibility for its stunning appeasement of Putin and its full backing of a U.S. president who behaved like a fucking foreign asset for the Kremlin. And thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. 
So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth. Thank <laughs> you.